Hello, hello, hello. My name is Brett Stewart. I am your host, and welcome to the third episode of Exploring the Blues in Chicago. On this episode of the program, we are going to delve into talking with artists. In particular, we're going to talk to two of them that I had wonderful conversations with. The first was Frank Bang. He plays with Frank Bang and the Cook County Kings. They've got a new record out called The Blues Don't Care. Previously, he's performed with Buddy Guy and a whole slew of other wonderful talents. We also talk with Derek Procell. He's put out a new record called Why I Choose to Sing the Blues, and he also has a long and storied career in the blues industry. And there's some fantastic people on this new record of his, including Chicago hometown favorites like Eddie Shaw and Billy Branch. Let's start with the conversation that I had with Frank Bang. In these discussions, we're going to talk about what it's like to be an artist in the city of Chicago, how they came into that craft. What attracts them to it? What do they love about it? What's hard about it? What's rewarding about it? All of that and much more coming up. Here's Frank Bang. Once again, you know I had the dream. You've had a long career now. You were born and raised in the city of Chicago, correct? Yeah, I was born in Chicago in... Uh... 1967. I'm one of those January blizzard babies. Okay, right on. Of the blizzard of 67. That's, that's I'm in that that very high populous rate. There was a lot of babies born in 67 in October and November. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know I was raised in Chicago too for most of my life, which which was something that I took for granted, especially at that time. When you could be a young white kid, my dad was a Chicago police officer. My mom's father was a Chicago police officer. So, you know, I got to grow up in the back kitchens at Italian restaurants, gnawing on bread while I was teething. I got to go to Cub and Sox games in the same day, you know, where my dad would pick up me and my brother and take us in our pajamas to Comiskey before we went to bed. And one of the things that I got to do, because again, growing up in Chicago was, my mom was working at a nightclub called the Blue Max. The Blue Max was on top of the uh, the the Hyatt out there in Rosemont, up by the airport. Right. It's actually right now it's 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 just a massive suite for the owner, I believe. But back then it was a nightclub. So my dad had plans with some friends, maybe some police officers, maybe some non-police officers to go see Lou Rawls, and the babysitter fell through. And uh, my dad put my brother with the neighbors because uh, that's what he did in those days. He was, you know, baby sleeping and took me. And I literally was in the pajamas in a booth. So I fell asleep. I remember a couple songs. I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember a couple songs. <clears throat> and I, you know, that element of being in Chicago like that was kind of one of those things that, you know, I would have never experienced if I wasn't born and raised there. You know, who the, who the freak sees Lou, Bra- Lou Rawls in a nightclub before they're 10 years old? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, did you kindle that love of blues early on then? Was this something where you knew you wanted to be a musician? You knew you wanted to be involved no. in that art in any capacity? No, it was actually, it was all accidental. You know, like, you know, my family's blue collar. They never really had a lot of money. So we've always been, like, even now, 
You know, I've done well as a musician. When I have off days, I go crazy because I'm not used to being a person that doesn't bring in an income on a daily basis. Now, granted, I do because of airplay with satellite radio and stuff like that, but it's something that's always consciously on my mind. It's the family I was raised from. So, no, I was, I went to school to be a mechanical engineer and was paying for school and was having problems with that. Took a kitchen manager job with the Hard Rock Cafe. I definitely remember being in Chicago uh, at, at the Hard Rock and going over to the limelight and seeing Buddy Guy for the first time. And, and that life kind of started introducing me to stuff like that. Uh, I remember on my 21st birthday telling all my buddies, because I went to high school in McHenry, so they all came into the city. Hey, uh, what are we going to do tonight? I said, I don't know. We're going to hit some bars. Like, sure, we're going to go to Rush Street. Sure, but we got to go to a blues club because, I mean, I could get into all kinds of bars before I was 21. I mean, I'm not trying to tell tales out of school, but, you know, I used to be able to get the limelight since I was 19. But something about maybe the way I was carrying myself, maybe the way I was dressed, or maybe the fact that my fake IDs just weren't that good, I never got into blues clubs every time I tried to go. My 21st birthday, I went to a blues club. There was a guy there named George Bays, who I became friends with many, many years later as a huge mentor in my life. Didn't know who he was from anybody i didn't know he was buddy guy and junior wells guitar player i just saw this guy playing at a club and besides playing all the great blues songs like little red rooster and sweet home chicago at one point of his show he made a point of trying to teach the audience what was going on with rock and roll and blues and the correlation and he did it with two songs first he did it with uh lagrange by zz top where he just played a little bit of the riff you know and showed johnny lee hooker had a riff like that and then he went into the Rolling Stones song, Missing You, which I didn't know Sugar Blue was the harp player back then. I just knew it was a Rolling Stones song with the harmonica that sounds really cool. And there was something about, even even in that party of, you know, hey, it's your birthday, let's do some tequila, you're not driving, all that stuff, where I made this connection right then and there, that all this rock music that I really was in love with, whether it had been Led Zeppelin or different bands that came from the blues first, it all made sense in that one night. And then I, you know, I really tried, went out of my way and kind of, all right, you know, like I like Stevie Ray Vaughan, but what else is there? And luckily being in Chicago, there was, you know, I was still 21-ish where, you know, if you're going to have some disposable income you might go to a record store and, you know, Chicago had Alligator Records so you could go into a record store then and you'd see Johnny Winter and Albert Collins and these guys, you know, up on records. So I, I, that was kind of what really got me listening to it. And I just became a fan of the music. When I, I met Stevie Ray Vaughan once in San Diego when I was working for the Hard Rock, told him how much I enjoyed his music, caught my accent, you know, because I didn't sound like a Californian, and asked where I was from, and I said Chicago. And he said, man, his exact words were, you should stop listening to me and go listen to... Uh, Albert Collins, Buddy Guy, Sons. He just started rambling off all the Chicago guys. <laughs> so when I got back to Chicago and I left the Hard Rock, it's exactly what I did. I took a job at Buddy Guy's Legends. I was way overqualified. I had been making, you know, 23 years old, I've been making $35,000 with bonuses with the Hard Rock. And I go to Buddy Guy's Legends to try to get a job. And the general manager looks at my resume and says, you're way, you got more, you're way too qualified for any job I have here. I said, well, you know, 
I like the music and it'd be kind of cool to work at a club. What do you got? I got a door shift, 60 bucks a night. I got one day a week for you and I might have some special events when Buddy plays here because this was before, damn right, I got the blues came out. So he used to play the club one week in a month. And I was like, okay. You know, my parents thought I was nuts because they were living in McHenry and I was driving 60 miles in each direction to make $60. And, you know, thank God for me, there was this band called Magic Summon the Teardrops. It was that Thursday night that they gave me. And between that and Buddy Guy and being at that club, all of a sudden that love of the music became what I was doing in my spare time. You know, like after a show, me and Wayne would sit there and just play blues guitar. I'm sure Wayne had aspirations to be on the big stage. You know, he was guitar teching for his dad at the time and hanging out with all these masters. But we weren't really, that wasn't why we were doing that. We were just trying to get better at blues guitar. And, you know, I mean... Before I knew it, I, I kept ra- rising up in Buddy Guy's club because, again, you know, the place was so raw. They were selling pints of liquor behind the merchandise area. The merchandise area only had a small amount of Buddy Guy stuff. They had stuff from other artists, you know, but this small amount. And, and coming from the Hard Rock Cafe where you would take a shower curtain, put a logo on it, and sell it in 72 places worldwide, it, w- it was just a natural place for me to kind of be like, well, why don't we have three different kinds of t-shirts? Why don't we have a sweatshirt? Where's the hats? And why, where, 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 where's the stuff that says Buddy Guy all over? We just have that. Why do we have a, a Sun Seals CD for sale? We're not blues on Halstead. We're Buddy Guy's legends. I rose up from the door guy to the merch guy to the night manager to the assistant general manager and talent buyer. You know what I mean? It just was a natural place for me. And I, I hit this wall with them. Me and the general manager were making the same amount of money. I was there five to six nights a week. I loved my job. Anybody who remembers me from those days will tell you, you know, I had a great time at that job. I was the general, uh, the night manager. I made sure everybody had a good time in that place. Not a bad job for a 20 something year old kid. At what and, point then did you start to interact with buddy? Oh, right from the beginning. Right, right from the beginning. He's always been very approachable. You know, he sits at that bar every night that he's not on the road. And he, his, this ain't something new. He's been doing that since the checkerboard days. Sure. So he's always been extremely approachable. You know, and it was one of those things where, like, he, he, he pays attention. So he'd notice you a little bit and then start talking to you. And then, you know, see, hear you were doing a good job, maybe talk to you a little more. But he was always like, if you, you know wanted to talk baseball or something like that with him, he was always approachable, always has been. I always found him that way. I'm sure as he's gotten older and there's such a demand on his time, it might not be as easy as it was back then. But he was always cool with me, you know. And then and, and I started guitar teching for him there at the club too. So like at the slipping in record, I'm the guitar tech for the whole record, working with Eddie Kramer, Johnny Johnson, Buddy, his band. Three, three of my sister-in-laws and me and the whole staff from Legends are singing background on Slipping In, which is a <laughs> Grammy award-winning record. So there was just, you just got sucked up into that life so fast. And because of the fact that I could also play a little guitar and understood the music, it, it was something that, it just was like a university of blues for me. And before you knew it, I started having guys come up and be like, hey, what are you doing Thursday night? I'm like, you know what I'm doing Thursday night? I'm here. I'm here five nights a week. What do you, why? Are you playing somewhere? And they're like, yeah. And I'd be like, oh, I'd come see you if I wasn't playing. I'm like, no, I was going to hire you to play guitar. 
Oh, that's interesting. And then, you know, when I hit that wall with Legends and couldn't make no more money, I was, like, starting to think about, well, what am I going to do? You know, I don't really want to... This isn't going to get any better than this. So I don't want to go work at another place because they can only pay me so much. And I don't really want to work for anybody else in this business. If I was ever going to do this again, it'd only be on my terms, my place, but I'm, you know, 20 or 30, 28 years old. It's not like I got tons of funds to do that. And then I just took a regular job and started taking gigs from people. You know, I gave legends my notice. They were kind of surprised that I was going to quit, but I kind of, couldn't really go no further with them financially. And then I realized me as a person was stop, starting to stop growing. You know, I was doing the same routine every single day, six days a week. And, you know, I just realized that there was things in life I was missing out on. And maybe if I could, you know, start playing some guitar for some people, give me a couple of extra days to develop me as a person. Maybe I could get a side job and have two jobs. Wouldn't that be great? You know, and that's just basically how it evolved. And then I got asked to be in the house band on the Monday Night Jam there, you know, after I quit. And I was like, sounds great. They'd get me back at Legends. Worked with a band in Chicago that was uh, signed to Capricorn Records called The Buzz. You know, they made us an offer at the end of our tenor. Uh, and it was right around that time that Buddy Guy asked me to join his band because he needed a new guitar player. We had played together a bunch of times at the club over the years. We had known each other for almost a decade at that point I'd opened up for him on the road, done stuff here in Chicago, played a lot on stage with him when I was hosting the Monday night jam and, you know, him and junior or sugar blue or somebody would get in the mood to play. And I had this decision to make. Do I take this deal with Capricorn records and my band with Warren Haynes as the producer, or do I try to join buddy guys band? I called Warren about it and he's, flat out in two minutes. I mean, you got to take the buddy guy gig, Frank. That's you coming full circle. That's you from where you started as a door guy going from 1991 to the year to end of 99, 2000, nine years later, you're being offered the guitar job. This is part of evolution. You got to take that job. We can always make a record. And, and I you did. had that job for five years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and it was, it was, it was, it was great, Brett, because it lived up and I still to this day, you know, it's funny. I went for the first time to go see one of his shows this last January and, and the show was great. And he's always bringing it, you know, it's part of his personality, especially on Saturday night. He's always Mr. Saturday night, man. He looks great on Saturday night. He's got spiffy clothes on Saturday night. And he's there to remind you that he's performing on Saturday night with his performances. Cause they're great. I did, Absolutely. you know, Notice though, after not seeing the band for 13 years, that I'm glad I'm not in that band anymore. Because again, you know, my growth would have stopped. And could I sat there and collect a check for 13 years and been happy to be on the stage with my musical idol? Part of me would have loved it. Part of me would have been like, hey man, you know, you play with him, you play with Dave Matthews, Carlos Santana, Jimmy Vaughn. I jammed with Zach Wilde at my own shows because I was in Buddy Guy's band. You you touch a lot of music that isn't just the blues. And there probably would have been part of me that would have, I don't know, like, you know, not, not there would have been no growth. So I think everything worked out. Yeah. And, you know, playing with him for five years, it's, you see every place in the world. 
24 countries. You know, I think I've gone to three extra countries since I left this band. I'm up to 27 now. <laughs> <laughs> so when you did leave the band, though, you ultimately started pursuing some solo pursuits, and you also uh, ultimately took on the role of producer for several people as well, correct? Yeah. Just, you know, with, with blues music in general, anytime someone, you know, and it in the beginning, it was, you know, before I put the Cook County Kings together where I could literally full-blown producer blues project and people would bring me in to help with their demos and things like that, and I always enjoyed it. Again, you know, when I started at Legends, my ex-wife was working at CRC, which is Chicago Recording Company. So I was learning the studio and sneaking in late at night and working with guys that I probably, you know, would have had to spend $600 a day with. I was getting access to after 11 p.m. for free, a couple hours a night a week. And, you know, I didn't really, I'm a fan of music. I think most of us who, I don't know, it's a, don't ever forget, Brett, that it is a music business. But as you're experiencing now, I think that you become a fan of music first and you go, wow, this is something I'd like to, I, I, I never call him sick because I love music. And I think that's something important to do when you're trying to find your calling in life. You're going to be a nurse. You better love being a nurse. And, you know, for me, I think it's really easy for us as fans of music. You can find your niche. You can find a way to do it to become something involved in the music industry. I think it really starts that way. And it did for me, too. So did I ever see myself being, a, you know, producing a, a blues record like I just did? No, but at the same time, it makes total sense because of me being in the studio for 20 years with people and, you know, the people that I have had opportunities to play with on stage. You know, I've been to three government meal sessions, just hanging out, you know, invited by Warren and was like, hey, I'm not missing that. <laughs> no, you know, so. certainly not. Yeah. <laughs> so... So now, when with your creative process, though, we talked about this a bit in our pre-interview that you're very, very raw when you like to approach the studio. I assume either as a producer or a performer that that yeah. the live sound of blues, there's something special about that. There's something palpable about that that doesn't need extensive overdubbing or extensive production. You want you want bleed. You want authenticity in that sound. If you listen to my favorite blues recordings, I don't know what yours are, but I'll just give you some of mine. Texas Flood by Stevie Ray Vaughan is a great blues recording. Stone Crazy by Buddy Guy is an absolutely phenomenal Buddy Guy record. Uh, Southside Blues Jam, Junior Wells with Buddy Guy, Otis Spann, uh, Fred Bilo, all those cats. The one thing, even though we're talking about a record from the 60s, a record from the 70s, and a record from the 80s, the first Kerry Clark record, so you even bring this full circle to a modern-day record, the one thing those, all those records have in common is they were recorded live. You know, I've been at studios <clears throat> down in Memphis, guitar teching for Larry McRae. Been at James Cott sessions where some of the best blues musicians in the world were playing on those sessions. But they weren't recorded live. I sat on the couch and watched Larry McCraig cut 32 solos to a James Cotton record, and the good ones didn't even make the record. So to me, I think back to that kind of thinking that why do I love Texas Flood? Why do I love Stone Crazy? Why do I love Southside Blues Jam? 
Why do I like the live Gary Clark stuff? Because again, it's live, it's raw, it's breathing to you with those room mics. And if you, you know, maybe that is my correlation to those early recordings of Zeppelin or the Allman Brothers that I really liked because they recorded live. And right. got that big sound from recording live, bleeding, letting everything come into the mix. I think that's essential. Absolutely. I mean, when, when you think about some of, for example, some of my favorite blues records, I think about the Blues Deluxe record that XRT put out in 1989 that has that, mm-hmm. that, that fantastic introduction with Lonnie Brooks doing Sweet Home Chicago, and he does it so yeah. much quicker than he was anticipating doing it. And the entire record, the phenomenal thing about that record is Lonnie, as, as exceptional as Lonnie was, uh, he is amongst equals, if not even more giant artists on that record in some capacities, and they're all live, and it's all just so uh, aggressively honest on that record. You can hear the bleed from mic to mic, and you can hear Lonnie bantering back and forth with his band and trying to find the beat because he's not used to playing it at that tempo, and that's what I love about that record is that it feels uh, so honest and i keep coming back to that word because i think that's quintessential to blues as a as a genre is authenticity and honesty and being genuine i think that's so important to blues i i i totally agree with you brett i mean you know it's funny i booked three days in the studio for that record that we just made with the cook county kings did i think we were going to do it in one day yeah did i hope that we were going to do it in one day yeah but i didn't plan for that Matter of fact, I was like a pitcher with a no-hitter. I wasn't even bringing up the fact that we're tracking the 10th song for the record, and it's only 8 p.m., you know? Like, I wasn't going to say nothing to nobody. And we got done. After we got done, uh, me and Chris Harden, who's the engineer I used over at Ivy Labs in Chicago. Shout out to Ivy Labs and Manny Sanchez and Chris and the guys there. It's the only place I record in Chicago for a reason. It's an amazing live room. So after I kicked everybody out of the studio... Rolled a joint, sat there and listened to what we had done. And I turned to Chris and I said, there's two more tunes I want to listen to. But honestly, I think we might have done everything we need to do with the band tonight. I think we might be done. And he was like, you know, I I didn't want to say anything to you, but I'm kind of feeling the same way. So, well, let's let's sit on it. The guys are coming back in the morning anyway. So left out of there probably a little before midnight, got some sleep, came back. The guys go in the live room. I'm like, hey, everybody grab a seat on the couch for a second. Let's talk about some stuff. And they were sitting there and said, I think we got the record. Let's listen to it. Even if we got to listen to the song a couple times. Listen to yourselves. Listen to the band as a whole. Matter of fact, let's do every song twice. You can listen to yourself and listen to you really concentrating on just that and then really concentrating on how you sound with the five of us in this room. And sure enough, you know, we got done. I was like, everybody go home. <laughs> you guys already nailed it, man. What's the point? And I think that's the honesty again of the music coming in. Texas Flood done in that same fashion. Buddy Guy Stone Crazy. The story behind that is Junior Wells was there with his band, which had Buddy Guy in it, Phil Guy in it, J.W. Williams, and Killer Allison. They great Killer Allison. In, in the band, it was an amazingly cool band. And they went and did a Junior Wells record and had three days in the studio and got the Junior Wells record done in one day. So whoever was funding the project in France said, well, buddy, why don't you come down the next day? But I was like, I don't know. I wasn't really planning on making a record. 
cracked open a bottle of cognac, treated it like a show. And to this day, I put that record on. And right from the beginning, I still get the same chills I always get. I've listened to that record 300 times. And Absolutely. I still get that. And he goes, ah! And all of a sudden, just tears <laughs> off into a little guitar solo thing after making that little noise because the mic picks all that up. Just, oof. I mean, I'm even getting chills talking to you about it because that's honest. You know, that's as honest as the stuff gets, man. And that's the blues. So let's let's break it down then, and this may sound like a cliche question, but I've asked this of everybody I've talked to because you'd be surprised at the different answers I get. But what do you love about it? What do you love about the blues as a genre that keeps you funneling your creativity into it versus going to other genres or exploring other avenues? What is it about Chicago blues that captured you when you were, you know, eight, nine, ten years old and you were going to that concert and still captures you right now? I saw Muddy Waters on the pier, that show they talk about that Jane Byrne put on. I didn't know what I was getting into that day. We went with the neighbors in McHenry who knew somebody in Big Twist and the Mellow Fellows band. We got there. There was this guy named Lonnie Brooks. He was pretty cool. There was <laughs> Big Twist and the Mellow Fellows. There was Coco Taylor. There was Muddy Waters. And I had no idea I would become friends with all these guys. It just was an experience, right? And, and it was a great one as, as a young child, a young 12, maybe 13, something like that. And I, Brett, I, to this day, will pick up my guitar, play some blues for me. There's nobody here. And it makes me feel great. It makes me feel good inside. It helps my soul. And now, you know, put it in perspective of my life. I get to do that for a job. I would do it for free. I do it for free at my house every day. You know, it's just something that I kind of need. Have I played that same blues in E for 30 years? Yeah, maybe. There might be some subtleties to it every day that make it a little different. There might be a tempo that's a little slower, a little faster every day. You know, it might be based off someone's actual classic tune one day. It might be freeform the next. But it's not like I'm rewriting stuff here. This, 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 this style of music, this blues and E that I'm talking about, has been popular in our style of music now for 70, 80 years. That's right. And yet, to me, every day, it like, is that, that hug that my soul needs. And then, you know, again, you go out and you play to people like I... Two weeks from now, we're playing the Chesapeake Bay Blues Festival in, Apple, in Annapolis, Maryland, with the Cook County Kings. That, that's a pretty good feeling, to know that you're going to connect with five, 6,000 people from the first note to the last, doing what you would do for free anyway. You know? Or at least that you'd do it for free. I, I, it's a weird thing to say, because the last thing you want is some promoter going, I heard a podcast, and you know, what do you mean you need this much money? <laughs> no, I understand but, it completely what you're saying, though. It's, it's the reason yeah. to get out of bed in the morning. If you don't love what you're doing, whether it's doing what I'm doing right here, or whether you're a journalist, or a writer, or a musician, or anything like that, you got to love what you're doing, and you got to be willing to do that for free or little pay, as you did early in your career, in order to get to a point where you can have a sustainable career and, and play for 6,000 people like that and have that be part of your life. Absolutely. To see the places I've played, you know, man, that guitar's taking me a lot farther than any car ever did. 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm one of these guys that can get in the car and go see friends 12 hours away. I don't mind driving. But that guitar is taking me to Japan, almost every place in Europe, you know, all these South American countries, Riga, Latvia. I mean, that, that is that guitar. And more importantly, it's that music, you know. And I didn't even really get this about myself until almost about two years ago to this date. Two years ago to this almost exact date, B.B. King passed away. And what struck me, you know, I mean, I spent two summers in Buddy's band with B.B. every day. Two and a half, actually. And also, you know, guitar tech for Larry McRae for a couple tours on B.B.'s tours. And, did, did, you know, he meant a lot to everybody in that scene. But what really struck me about a month after he'd passed away, I was grateful for all that experience and all that time. And I thought to myself, this is why I'm supposed to play blues guitar. This is the big picture that you don't even get, Frank. Because I would have blues guys like Buddy, Lonnie, telling me, hey, man, you got this rock thing, too, so don't just be caught up in this blues thing, man. Go touch the bigger audiences. We're the small pond. But as cool as that's been, I, you know, I've got a lot of play on satellite radio from some of my rock blues records. Playing Chicago blues is what I'm supposed to be doing because that's why karma or the gods or whatever it is, or even the genre blues allowed me to be part of, I can't turn that off now and not give it to someone like maybe someone you're going to school with, Brett will run into me one day and be like, man, that guy inspired me to play Chicago blues. You know, and that I didn't get all that. I didn't understand that whole concept until after BB passed away. And I sat with those tour books, you know, taking a couple minutes to reminisce every summer of going across the country in those tours with him and Buddy and how lucky I was to do that, you know, and that now that he's gone, who's going to make sure someone remembers his name? Who's going to make sure someone remembers Buddy Guy? You know, our, our band is based around Chicago-style show. So I'll do a couple songs. I'll turn it over to my harmonica player. They'll do a couple songs or a song. I'll do another one, turn over my bass player. He'll do another. It's, it's like how it was when we were first in the scene, how bands used to be like Magic, some of the teardrops, or how Billy Branch and the Sons of Blues used to be when they had Moses and Carl Weathersby. It's pretty much the identity of our band. That's what Frank Bang and the Cook County Kings is. And the one guy we all have an affinity with, that we all bring up all the time, is Magic Slim from Magic Slim and the Teardrops. Now, granted, BJ and Andre played with him. They were in his last band when he passed away. But also, he meant so much to all of our lives. We make a point of saying every day on stage, a couple of us, you're going to know the name Magic Slim from Magic Slim and the Teardrops before we get done with that 60 minutes, 90 minutes, or three hours we're playing. And that's important to us. That's more important than getting paid at the gig, actually. You know, that we're, it's that big of a priority to us. Absolutely. That, that's, that's necessary not only for ourselves, you know, this honesty that we talk about, it's necessary for that as well. Man, I'm playing a one-note solo for 12 bars. You know where I got that from? Magic Slim. I'm not going to sit there and say I created that stuff. But at the same time, I'm going to show you how I do it. I'm being honest. Exactly, and I think it's important in any art form, uh, particularly Chicago blues, I think, in order to pay homage to, to your 
your idols and the people who inspired you, but not be necessarily derivative of them, but take what you've learned from them and take what inspired you about the way they did something and put your own twist on it and put, you know, make it your own in unique ways, but still be part of that overarching lineage of Chicago blues. And what oh, I wanted look, to ask you yeah, about you with that. You hit that one right on the nail, man. If you look at little Ed, you know, who he sounds unique. You pull oh, up certainly. His, his uncle JB Hutto, and you see the simulations all the way to the hat. But when I listen to Little Ed, I hear Little Ed. I don't hear J.B. Hutt. Absolutely. And what I wanted to ask you about in regard to that is some of my interviewees that I've talked to thus far were apprehensive about the future of, of, of Chicago blues. They didn't know whether or not they were going to be young and up-and-coming artists in their you know their 20s and their early 30s who are going to be championing this, this music right now they didn't know whether or not the scene was going to be sustainable for them to continue to do so for much longer i'd be curious what your thoughts are uh looking forward in this genre in this music community this family as as you said in many ways where it's going to go in you know 10 20 30 40 50 years it's it's always going to be the small pond of music that much I don't think is ever going to change because that's the one consistent since the days of chess records that has not, you know, changed. It's never going to be the biggest form of music, no matter what happens, you know, and that's okay. Sometimes it's good to be a big fish in a small pond. I know it seems that, you know, I'm not a big fish. I think I'm starting to just become a larger fish after 25, 26 years of this. And it, it don't suck, you know, and that's one of the things that for me, Staying in this genre is really specific because I do see the benefits of being in the small pond. Not only, well, no, I see the ball. I see the benefits of the small pond strictly from commerce because there's some times where you're, you know, you know how many times for 30 years I'd go to gigs and people be like, man, how you guys, you guys are better than this guy. I just paid $40 to go see in a theater uh, auditorium. I, I get it. It's everyone's, you know, different. And I don't honestly think, and I, I travel, I honestly don't think the Blues are going to be in a bad situation because I go to places where I see younger kids, way younger than when I got hip to this. You know, I didn't even really start playing guitar until I was 17 years old and didn't think about it as a profession until I was 25 years old. You know, when I started doing gigs and getting paid from people when I was, you know, 23, even then I was like, it's just a one thing to do one day, you know? So I see younger people, black, white, Asian, all kinds of different ethnicities, male, female, that are playing blues at a younger age. So I think the music's always going to be fun. What I worry about sometimes is the commerce of the music, because I've seen, like, you know, everyone talks about the difference in the record company industry between the 90s and, say, now. And if you can imagine if it happened on a large level with CBS and Warner Brothers dealing with guys like Tom Petty, you can imagine what it's been like for blues artists and blues labels, because blues labels don't have the deepest pockets either. I worry about that sometimes, because I've seen things that were normal change. You know, I, I, I own the Masters every record I own, ever made. Ever made. Uh, made a blues record, had four labels offer me a deal right away, but they all wanted to own my Masters. And they didn't want to really give me enough to, to warrant that. 
We're in the days that used to have. I worry about the the blues in that respect. How's the commerce going to be? But I think the music itself, man, we can go down to Memphis, New Orleans, places that you probably wouldn't even know real well. You can take you some places here in Florida that aren't exactly known for blues hotbeds. And you'll see some younger people playing and you'll realize right away this music is going to be fine and it's going to thrive and it's always going to have its place in this world.
Again, that was Frank Bang, and you can find his new record, The Blues Don't Care. It's Frank Bang and the Cook County Kings. Be sure to check that out. Some of the music you're hearing in today's program is his music. And of course, all of that's going to be in the show notes so you can learn more about it. Now we're going to turn to a discussion with Derek Procell. He has a new record out called Why I Choose to Sing the Blues. We had a wonderful conversation too. Check it out. Well, what I would like to go ahead and start with, Derek, is I'd like to talk a little bit about your upbringing and how you got involved into the blues. I understand that you were the son of an American GI and a war bride, and you were born in a U.S. Army hospital, but you spent your childhood in Germany and Venezuela. So when you returned to the U.S. later on, you didn't know how to speak English, right? Uh, well, I was speaking, uh, you know, several different languages. Like you said, I, I was speaking German, um, uh, when I was living in Germany and when, when I was in uh, Venezuela, I spoke Spanish and I also spoke Russian at home with my Russian grandmother. Um, so yes, you're, you're right. So when I came to the States, when I was eight years old, uh, I had to learn English. <laughs> okay. And now in order to help learn English, you sang songs on the radio. What kind of stuff were you singing at that point in your life? Well, let's see. Uh, I'm going to give away my age here now. <laughs> um, you know, I came here when I was eight. So, uh, you know, whatever was, was on the, you know, popular music radio of the of the day, you know, like probably what my mom was listening to, you know, stuff like uh, Perry Como and Andy Williams and, you know, crooners like that um you know but also uh rock and roll i mean i, I was uh, definitely a product of of the rock and roll era in fact uh, my mom uh met met my dad over in germany uh when he was stationed over there as gi and he brought her back to the states and, and they were down in uh, louisiana and one of the uh one of the places that my mother took me to while we were living down there. Uh, so in other words, I had to actually relearn um, <laughs> English because I spoke English before I, I went to uh, South America um, was uh, something called the Louisiana Hayride. And I actually saw Elvis Presley before he became a huge international sensation uh, when he was on the Louisiana Hayride circuit. Um, so, you know, rock and roll was, was definitely part of the picture, too. Absolutely. Now, when did blues start to infiltrate your life? What age, and, and also when did you start playing blues? Well, I started playing in bands uh, sort of in, in high school, uh, sort of, in, you know, in the 60s. Um, I graduated uh, in 1969, so if anybody out there wants to do the math, you can figure out how old I am. But, uh, um, you know, I grew up listening to all kinds of music uh, in the 60s, man. The 60s were such an incredible time for music. It was uh, the British invasion and, um, you know, everything from the Beatles to the Kinks to the Rolling Stones and the Animals and Spencer Davis group and, I mean, on and on and on. Um, and really, that was... That was when I first got my taste of the blues. Now, at the time, I didn't realize what these uh, some of these British bands, in particular groups like the Animals, you know, Eric Burden and the Animals, who were covering a lot of 
um, blues, American blues stuff that was coming right out of here in Chicago uh, by people like Willie Dixon, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf. Uh, you know, they, I mean, um, Eric Burden, one of, one of his hit singles, one of his hit 45s was Boom Boom. Rolling Stones were doing a lot of uh, uh, Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf songs. I only knew them as those songs. Uh, the Yardbirds covered I'm a Man. So, you know, and later on, as, as uh, it got more into bands like Led Zeppelin, who really basically were uh, a souped-up blues band, I mean, they, you know, they get, they get called the, uh, you know, the, the godfathers of, of metal. Uh, but really they were just a loud, <laughs> a loud blues band. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, I was covering those songs in some of my early bands. Um, and then after a little bit of digging, um, you know, you'd find out, Oh, wow, this is where these songs come from. And here I'm growing up in Milwaukee uh, just, you know, 90 miles north of Blues Central down here in Chicago. And I think one of the interesting parts about that British invasion and the way that youth in that era got turned on this type of music like yourself is that you're very much right. You could pick up an animals record and it could say the animals songwriter J.L. Hooker, you know, and who is J.L. Hooker? You can't go online and look him up. Uh, that was information that was harder to come by at that time i think which made it harder to go back and figure out who exactly these british invasion artists were taking the music from absolutely yeah and you're right i mean back then um you know if you really wanted to know something you had to go to the you had to actually go to the library and go to the reference desk <laughs> right you know you had to be you you know you didn't have it on your smartphone you know so yeah um, so I, you know, I dug as far as, as, as I felt I needed to dig. I, I, I guess I wasn't, uh, curious enough to, to really delve deeply into the blues, like, like some people who who discover it and, and then, you know, sort of fall in love with it. And, and that's, you know, they, 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 they dig further and further back and discover some of the, you know, the real early pioneers. Um, because at the time I was still, developing my own musical style. And I realized that blues were a, a very big part of it. I mean, you know, in, in my approach to singing, uh, I mean, I really tended to emulate guys like Eric Burden and um, Steve Winwood. And, you know, and, and then discovering that, you know, Steve Winwood in turn was emulating, uh, you know, people like Ray Charles, <laughs> you know, uh, or, or whoever. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I realized that that was my, I guess, my foundation um, for a lot of, you know, what eventually became my own music, that, that the blues were, you know, kind of at the core uh, heart of it. Uh, you know, I've been told since I was a tiny little guy, I mean, I cut my first record when I was 16 years old, um, vinyl 45s for any of you guys listening out there, if you remember those, um, you know, I, uh, and even then I was told, wow, you know, you sound very bluesy or, or, uh, you know, you, you sound like an R and B singer or very soulful or, you know, words to that effect. So 
I, I guess I've been aware that I have that, that I guess innate quality in my vocal style and even in my playing style, I, I really tend to, to like, I, I like the guys, especially, you know, on keyboards on piano that play with that sort of soulful style. So I guess what I would like to ask you is your album is called Why I Choose to Sing the Blues. That's your most recent studio endeavor that came out last October. And quite frankly, why do you choose to sing the blues? That's the that's actually an interesting question to me, because there are so many other genres out there and you've explored a bevy of them. But you come back to that foundation. What is it about the blues as a genre, maybe even more specifically Chicago blues, that is so compelling to you as an artist? That is a great question. I choose to sing the blues because it flows out of me quite naturally. Uh, I mean, it, like I said, it's, it's sort of there, even when I'm not, even when I'm singing some other style, it's there and I don't have to try to, to, you know, sort of mold my, my, uh, my singing style to that. Whereas for example, if I'm, if I'm trying to, if, if I'm, if I'm singing a country song, uh, I'm a lot more conscious of singing that way in that style and, and, and pushing my vocal uh, to have a little more of, of, I guess, what would be identified as a country sound. Whereas with the blues, I don't, I, I'm not, it's unconscious. Very neat. And I wanted to also talk about just blues as a whole, more broadly, as someone who has been performing blues for so long, you've been around Chicago, maybe not necessarily live as much in the studio. I understand you have been referred to as Mr. Studio. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on the blues scene moving forward, because a lot of a lot of music fans, especially within my generation, look back at blues, not necessarily as an archaic genre, but as something that is not progressing forward. And that's actually a concern that some of my interviewees have expressed, is whether or not the blues will continue forward and how it will continue forward, what form it'll take. What are your thoughts on that? Where do you see this genre that you love moving forward 10, 20, 30 years from now? Well, that's a great question, Brett. And, and I think the answer lies in, you know, the, I guess the old adage of you can't please everybody. There is, there, there are definitely two schools uh, of, of thought out there on what the blues is, can, and should be. There is, uh, there's definitely a group of, of folks out there who are the, uh, let's call them the traditionalists. You know, the blues is, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. You know, it's, it's this, it's this thing. It's three chords, it's 12 bars. It's done this way. And, you know, this is the, this is a specific sort of song form. And if you stray from that, then it's not the blues anymore. And it can only be performed this way. And it can only be, you know, um, and, and, you know, I get that. And a lot of it, uh, I guess, owes uh, to, to a certain allegiance to what came before that, um, you know, you don't, you don't mess with the formula. <laughs> um, the other school of thought, uh, and, and this is, and, 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 I, and I'm not 
knocking that that the traditionalists at all. God bless them, you know. I mean, right. they, I, there's there's room for everybody. So you know, and if that's what you dig, you know, if you dig your blues a, a certain way, and it can only be you know can only sound like uh, you know this that or the other thing, and, and and can only be about certain subject matters and and whatnot. Well, there's plenty of acts, there's plenty of artists out there who are carrying on that traditional type of blues. On the other hand, there are uh, there are artists out there in the indie blues movement who I think are, you know, kind of keeping it more current and contemporary, um, who are trying to expand the boundaries of the blues. Uh, I mean, in, I'm certainly one of them. You know, you've heard my CD. Uh, at least, you know, you told me you have. <laughs> I have, yes. More than once. <laughs> More than so, once. So, you know, I think you'd have to agree. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, it, it's a pretty wide uh, umbrella that it, that it, it sits under. Um, you know, the songs on my record, I think, kind of cover a, a, a wide range of stylistic approach to the blues. You know, they're not all kind of down the same road. And, uh, that's, that's just me personally. I, I, I dig that. I dig, I dig expanding, uh, the boundaries of song form. And, and if you want to add some more color chords, if you want to, you know, uh, not have a, a traditional chorus in a song, if you want to sort of rock it up a little bit, you know, that's okay. I think, I think if it still has the underlying uh, song format and core of, of a blues, then I think, you know, the, the rules don't necessarily have to apply all the way across the board to, to, to any, to everything that, that is called blues. And I think that there are some guys out there, um, you know, I, I haven't heard them all. Um, obviously there, there's, there's a lot of artists out there doing a lot of different kinds of blues. Um, but there are some artists out there like Joe Bonamassa, for example, who, you know, I don't know that uh, traditionalists necessarily uh, find him uh, to their liking. And that's OK. Um, but I, I happen to know that Joe ha also has a very deep reverence for traditional blues. I mean, uh, in terms of where, you know, where he learned to craft his music. Um, came from the same place, you know, it all comes from Certainly. Muddy and Howlin' Wolf and, you know, and, and, and I, I know he has a deep respect for them, but his approach to it is, is a little more, you know, amped up for sure. And, you know, he's filling uh, places like the Chicago theater for a three night uh, sellout run. So he's doing something right. Absolutely. Well, Why I Choose to Sing the Blues is available right now, and of course you can find that on on Derek's website, which is DerekAnAmerican.com. All of this will be in the show notes, and of course you can also find it over on Bandcamp, on Amazon, on iTunes, all of that as well. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me a little bit this afternoon and talk about your music. It really means a lot, and I love your record. Thank you. Well, listen, I got one question for you. So, so of all the songs on the record that, that uh, you've listened to, uh, give me your favorite. What's, 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 
what what's the one that grabs you the most? I have to, you know, I think I love the record, but when I first turned it on and I heard the wolf will howl again and you were duetting with Eddie Shaw and it has this howling wolf, you know, raw aggression to the voice. I love it. I love that song. Uh, but they're all great all songs. Right. I, I, I really no, love Who Will good. Tell Lucille. I think uh, Don't Waste a Wish on Me is great. Down for your shoes. 
My name is Brett Stewart. I have been your host, and this was another episode of Exploring the Blues in Chicago. A big, big, big thank you to both Frank Bang and Derek Procell for taking the time not only to sit down and talk about the blues with me so we could have these wonderful conversations that we can listen to, but also for letting me use their music. The music you are hearing in these shows is from them, and it's so appreciated, and you should go buy their records. Go check them out. They're wonderful albums. You can find that in the show notes. There will be plenty of information on how to check that out. On the next episode, which is already available in your feed because we have released all of these at the same time, I talk with music journalist and album liner note writer and author Bill Dahl all about the history of Chicago blues. It's a great episode. Don't miss it. Tune on into it next. Thank you very much. Again, my name is Brett Stewart. You can find me on Twitter at RiversRubin and online at brettdavidstewart.com. See you soon.